Good morning and welcome. I love gathering with you all. I look forward to this all week long. Last week, Germain walked us through a study of the first three miracles Jesus performed with the intent to teach his disciples a powerful lesson, one they wouldn't soon forget. As they struggled in the boat on what I'm sure they believed was the precipice of eternity, convinced they were about to die, Jesus rebukes them for their lack of faith. Then, with a word, he not only stops the gale force winds, but calms the sea. Now, if the storm alone was immediately stopped, and that on its own would be miraculous enough, the water would still be rough. It would take time for the sea to quieten down. But the passage reads, and there was a great calm. Jesus supernaturally overrides the laws of physics. Potential and kinetic energy in the waves is instantaneously dissipated because he is the sovereign, natural lawmaker. Those laws exist to serve him, not the other way around. The disciples are forced to reevaluate their assumptions of him as they ask among themselves, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? In today's passage, we will learn more about this king, who he is, the power he commands, and the lessons he has for his disciples, including those of us who are his disciples today. So let's jump straight into the passage. We're going to read Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 to 34. So Matthew chapter 8, starting at verse 28. And when he, that's Jesus, came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, They begged him to leave their region. Let's just take a moment to pray. Father, we thank you for your word that you have given to us. We thank you for this account that we have opportunity to study, and we pray that we might have listening ears and open hearts, that we might be willing to learn what it is that you would have us to learn from this passage. Give me wisdom to speak your words this morning. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, we are going to learn a few lessons about Jesus the King in this passage. And the first one I want you to consider is this. Jesus the King is sovereign over the supernatural. Anyone here willing to admit they're still a little bit afraid of the dark? Even though you're a grown man or woman, ever walk just a little more quickly from the dark basement up the stairs to where it's light? I have those moments, and I'm, well, I'm older than almost every single one of the congregation here. 
but truthfully, that's just our imagination at work. The first thing Jesus and his disciples encounter when they arrive is two demon-possessed men, and I believe that would be more than enough to make my hair stand on end. This is the real thing, folks. If you watch horror movies that involve this kind of thing, you know that they are terrifying. But I believe that this situation that the disciples encountered with Jesus would ratchet that up times a hundred. The country of the Gadarenes, also called the country of the Gerasenes, a wilderness area between the village of Gadara and Gergesa, is on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. The scene of this encounter may be specifically near a modern-day town called Kursa. There are ancient tombs here, and the shoreline descends very steeply into the water, which matches the description we read in the passage. Now, these demon-possessed men have had control of this location for quite a while. The account in Matthew reads that they were so fierce that no one could pass that way. Now, I'm going to post a picture of what uh, a road in those days might look like on our WhatsApp chat for those of you that are in attendance today. So you can have an idea of what, why no one could pass that way. But what you'll see from the photo is that the roads were very, it was a wilderness area. The roads were tended to be steep, narrow paths, uh, sometimes along cliff sides. People just avoided the area altogether. Now, I might just add at this point that the other accounts, the one in Mark and the one in Luke, indicate only one demon-possessed man. This is not necessarily a contradiction. It is quite possible that one was highly dominant and vocal and thus received most of the attention while the other was very subdued, as a result, going virtually unnoticed. When police interview witnesses, for example, in traffic incidents, they often get this same kind of variation in detail. Notice that the demons know exactly who Jesus is. What have you to do with us, O Son of God, they cry. They know in whose presence they stand. Have you come here to torment us before the time? Not only do they acknowledge Jesus' deity, but they understand that there is a coming judgment for them and that he will be their judge. And yet there is no repentance or remorse from them. It is one thing, ladies and gentlemen, to know the truth, and it is another to love and apply that truth. What about you? Are you like the demons, knowing the truth, but not taking that extra step to apply it to your life and standing before God? How horrifying to come to that day where you stand before Jesus, having acknowledged in your mind who he is, but having never submitted to him, never asked for his salvation and forgiveness, only to have him say to you, I never knew you. Depart from me into everlasting torment. He can be your savior, ladies and gentlemen, or he can be your judge. What will it be? And brothers and sisters, this reinforces for us the need for prayer along with our evangelism. I love how Katie asked for prayer when witnessing to a co-worker and others of you have done the same. We could fill people's heads with knowledge about Jesus all day long. But it is the Holy Spirit that convicts their hearts and causes them to act on what they've been shown. 
Let us never forget that prayer is not a part of the work as much as prayer is the foundation on which all the work should be done. Notice that Jesus shows no fear or concern. He speaks authoritatively. In Mark 5, verse 8, Jesus commands, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Jesus demands the spirit's name, whereupon the spirit leader obeys, indicating that his name is Legion and that there are many demons possessing the men. Jesus commands this legion. And legion is a Roman word which describes a group of up to 6,000 soldiers. 6,000. And he commands them and they obey. With a word, thousands of demonic spirits are dismissed. He is demonstrating that he, Jesus, is the promised cure to the curse of Genesis chapter 3. Back in Genesis there, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. He will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. Jesus is the one who will crush the head of the serpent, a fatal blow. Although it is true that, the, that Satan will bruise his heel. That is not a permanent or fatal wound. Jesus is the promised offspring of the woman who is right now actively crushing the head of the serpent. There are a variety of TV shows like NCIS and others that involve a special ops team that have the responsibility to take on missions that no one else can handle. And there's always a leader, authoritative, who takes control of situations, demands respect and obedience, gives the orders. Jesus is that man, the ultimate commander in this situation. In previous weeks, we saw sickness instantly obey him. Last week, the winds and the seas, the forces of nature instantly obey him. And here in this passage, we see the demons, the supernatural, instantly obey him. They acknowledge his authority as the Son of God. They plead with him not to send them into the pit. They request of him that he send them instead into a herd of pigs. But ultimately, the decision is his. They plead, they request, but he decides. When we celebrated our 10th anniversary, Judy and I visited old Quebec City for three days while Nana and Papa stayed at our house to take care of our then three-year-old son, David. We called on the second day of our trip just for an update, see how things were going. Nana said, everything's going just fine. Papa gave us a more realistic account. We're having our moments, he said, but the full truth actually came from our David. He got on the phone and gleefully stated, I'm not obeying. Now that's a cute and funny story, but do you know what stuns and horrifies me? That the very demons know to obey and acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God, but mere humans stand in rebellion, mocking him and shaking their fist in defiance. Learn a lesson from the posture of the demons toward Jesus. If they, with their significant power, still bow to him, how much more should we? Young David 
before he became king of Israel, speaking of the mighty Goliath, said, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And who are you, rebellious sinner, that you should dare to wave your fist in the face of Jesus, the Son of God, and imagine that there will be no consequence? How many of you here have literally or figuratively waved your puny little fist in God's face at one time or another in your life? So have I. Should there be a reckoning for that? You bet there should. And there was. Did you pay it? Did I? No. Here is the awesome wonder of the love and grace of God toward those who place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. God punished Jesus for your rebellion. God took the penalty that you deserved, that I deserved. He removed it from our account and he entered it into Jesus' account. He made Jesus pay your penalty. He punished Jesus for your defiance. If you are his today, let the tears of thankfulness flow. Worship him for his overwhelming heart of love toward you. Thank Jesus for taking your place. And if you have not yet bowed your stubborn heart to him, do it today. He has every right to demand your obedience. But in love and grace, he offers you his forgiveness as you submit to him your heart, your life, your all. Don't wait until tomorrow. You have no guarantee of tomorrow. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2 says this, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Do it now. There's another lesson here that is equally powerful, and it's this. Jesus the King is compassionate toward the individual. Regardless of his great power, in being able to command the supernatural and they obey, he's still compassionate towards the individual. I want us to pan way out for a second. Get a God's eye view of what's been happening here. First, Jesus was preaching the Sermon on the Mount with great crowds in attendance. Jesus and his disciples come down from the mountain. Great crowds follow him. Jesus heals the leper the centurion's servant, and Peter's mother-in-law. Many people bring their loved ones for healing. Folks, Capernaum is where the action is. If you want to create a following, if you want to amass your disciples and turn the world upside down, this is where you want to be. What does Jesus do? In verse 18, we read, now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. Why would you want to get away from the crowds, Jesus? Of course, we talked about that two weeks ago. Jesus had a spiritual mission to complete, that of restoring relationship between God and mankind, while the people were focused on a physical mission, that of restoring their physical bodies. So that's part of it. Another part was the lessons that Jesus wanted to teach his disciples in the storm. But there were further lessons to be learned in the country of the Gadarenes as well. And let's read verse 34 again. It says this, And behold, 
all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. And now notice the next verse, and getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. So wait, what? You mean to tell me that Jesus left all the crowds, all the visibility being provided to his ministry, crossed all the way over the Sea of Galilee, risked his life and the lives of his disciples in a crazy storm. Okay, there wasn't really any risk, was there? All for these two men, or maybe just one? Really? Yes, really. You see, popularity is not Jesus' mission. We said a few weeks ago that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, as he said in Luke 19, verse 10. He came to seek and to save you, regardless of the distance, regardless of the cost to him, regardless of whether you were in a crowd that got saved or you were just one individual alone. Numbers are not important to him. People are. You are. We see it all the time in the Gospels. Remember the paralytic let down on his stretcher through the roof. The woman who had been bleeding internally for years. The Samaritan woman at the well. All individuals. Sometimes they were in the midst of a crowd. But they were one that Jesus focused on. And on and on we see the same examples again and again. God says in Jeremiah 1 verse 5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. He was speaking of Jeremiah at that time, but God is outside of time, so he's not limited to waiting until after to get to know us. There is no after for him. He knows us, he made us, and he desires for us to know him. That's why he sent Jesus. Turn over to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8, and we're going to read at the start of verse 26. What I want to do is read the same account in Luke's Gospel. He adds some other details. So, Luke, chapter 8, starting at verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, or the Gadarenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break those bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. And then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus, and note this, and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting 
at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Now, you may have noticed some differences in this account from Matthew's account. What I want you to consider is that we are this man. We are this man. This story is our story. On our own, we are a desperate mess. Before God, we are naked and exposed. The men were living among the tombs. Ephesians 2 verse 1 says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, and dead men and women belong among the tombs. He was bound with chains and shackles. Our sin binds us. We might think we've broken free, only to find ourselves bound again, isolated, alone, and tormented. They were hacking and gashing themselves with stones, self-destructive, just like we are. The only one, the only one who can free us, and I mean really free us, is Jesus. It is only in him that we can find ourselves at rest, sitting at his feet, clothed with the dignity that he provides, and in our right minds. We sit among the living rather than dwelling among the dead. What will your response be today? Remember how Matthew recorded two men? I wonder if the other man just went away, still bound in his sin and his torment. I have no way of knowing. I, I just wonder why there's no mention of the other man. But here's something that we do know. Verse 37 in this passage again tells us that the people of the surrounding country asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. Isn't it crazy that they bound up a violent demoniac, but they wouldn't believe in the one who set him free? How did the man who had been freed respond? He begged that he might be with him. What about you? How will you respond to Jesus today? Will you simply walk away? Will you ask Jesus to leave because he makes you afraid? Or will you beg that you might be with him? If you are a believer this morning, a follower of Jesus, then take a moment and consider all that God arranged for you to be his child the steps along your spiritual journey, the coincidences, and I say that in quotations, that brought you to be here and be his this morning. Oh, praise him for what he has done in your life. Glorify his name to those in your circle. If you are not his follower, or if you've been away for a while, 
Your being here today is no coincidence. You are here because he meant for you to be here. He meant for you to hear this morning's message. Will you waste or spurn his efforts to reach out to you, to demonstrate his love for you? Or will you respond to his outstretched arms of love today? Will you leave? Will you ask him to leave or will you beg to be with him? What is your response going to be? There's one more lesson that we can take from this account, and it's this. Jesus, the king, commissions his disciples. Jesus, the king, commissions his disciples. The compassionate heart of Jesus is once more on display here. Despite their wholesale rejection of him, he leaves them a witness, someone to testify to the saving power of Jesus the king. The once demon-possessed man, now freed, begged that he might be with Jesus, but Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he did just that. It reads that he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. If you understand the gospel enough to get saved, you understand the gospel enough to share it with others. The other disciples got in the boat with Jesus and they crossed to the other side. This brand new disciple, brand new believer was on his own, alone. Now, I might theorize that in some unique way, the Holy Spirit was with this man, but Scripture doesn't say that. It doesn't say anything, actually. But here's what I do see. That what he didn't do was this. He didn't whine and complain about what the other disciples got to do and that he had to stay. He didn't go into a funk and start wondering if Jesus loved him or not. Here's what he did do. He obeyed right away without griping and complaining. Not only that, he obeyed enthusiastically and wholeheartedly. He went throughout the whole city. What about you and me? Because the Holy Spirit has come, we are never really alone once we become a child of God. But we can certainly feel alone. Ever felt like you're the only Christian in your family, in your workplace, in your school, in your neighborhood? I wonder if this man endured some rejection, some taunting, some mockery. Huh, now we really know you're out of your mind, as he proclaimed what Jesus had done. But they couldn't deny the change in him. Is there a change in you? Is your attitude different? Is your speech different? Is your behavior different? Is your thinking different? So much so that it stands out to those around you. Don't get me wrong. I think we've all known Christians, quotes, unquote, who were so bizarre or so pompous about their choice to be different that they were rejected or despised simply for their weirdness or their arrogance, not for the sake of Christ. Let that not be us, but rather let it be clear that we are loving and gracious toward the lost because of our devotion to the one who loved us unto death. Let's be ones who let Christ and his love shine out of every pore in our body. Let's be eager and wholehearted to obey him in all he asks so that his name is glorified just like this man did. And what Jesus has commanded each of us as his disciples is that we go, therefore, 
and make disciples of all nations, as he said in Matthew 28, 19. And in Mark 16, 15, he said, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. If Jesus kept a written record of your response to his command, like he did about this man, how would you want it to read? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are, we are overwhelmed as we get a glimpse again of who you are. We see your power over the supernatural, but we also see your compassionate heart toward the individual, toward this man. And we see your heart towards others, too, who are lost as you send this man back to his city, to his family, to share what you had done for him. Father, we are just like that. Lord Jesus, you want us to do exactly the same. You want us to go to our friends, to our neighbors, to our colleagues, to our our family, and you want us to tell them what you have done for us. Father, give us boldness as we do this, but let us also be loving and gracious like the Lord Jesus was. And Father, we just pray that your Holy Spirit would go before and would prepare those hearts. The work is not ours. We are simply called to be faithful, and we pray that we would. In Jesus' name, amen.